Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. Today we will be hearing from my good friend and brother in Christ, Justin Wisink, as we cover the final section of chapter 9. Let's get started. All right, uh, let's get started. Let me pray for us as we open up here. God, just thank you for today. Thank you for your word, that it is our source of life and truth, and I just pray that today you would open our minds to it, help us to learn something new and see things in a fresh way. In Jesus' name, amen. So obviously, you guys this week, uh, Ben is not here, he's out of town, so I want to welcome everybody uh, in the room and online. Thanks for joining us. Uh, My name is Justin Wissink, in case you don't know me. I have known Ben for a few years now, um, and we've become pretty good friends, and I'm taking this class along with you guys as well. So I was uh, more than honored when Ben approached me and asked me if uh, he would, if I would consider teaching this class in his place for one week. So, and I'll be honest, I thought about it for a minute because I think of myself more as a singer than I do a speaker. Uh, So, uh, but here I am and uh, I'm grateful that Ben would trust me with that. I'm not sure if that says that he's wise or unwise. We're going to find out in just a minute here. Yeah, I could. That would make it that might, would that make it more awkward for you guys, but more comfortable for me if I would sing it all. Uh, I want to do two things at the beginning here a little differently than than Ben normally does. Like I said, I want to say thanks to Ben, and I want to give credit where credit is due for him. He's put a lot of work into this class. Um, it's given me a new appreciation for how much he prepares and the time it takes to get ready to teach something like this, the amount of effort he puts into really everything that he does with this. Um, so a lot of my own preparation and study for today is based on what Ben had already put together for this. So I don't want to take credit for something that is not totally mine. So keep that in mind as we go forward today. Uh, and if there's something you disagree with, it's probably from Ben. (laughs) Uh, The second thing I want to do is I want to do our reflection questions at the beginning instead of the end. And the reason I want to do that is Ben's not here. And I, I felt like we have an opportunity to encourage him a little bit, give him uh, a couple of the things maybe that we really like about the class that will kind of drive him forward as we continue with this since we're not quite even halfway through with everything. So what you'll see, if you're online, you don't see these and I'll read them for you. But if you're in the room, I have those three questions up there. If you're comfortable, um, I don't care who talks or who doesn't. If nobody wants to share, then I'll say my answers to those questions. Um, But the three questions I have up there is what is one thing you've learned from this class that you didn't know before? Number two is what encouragement would you offer Ben about the class? Or number three is what is your favorite thing about this class? And my, the heart behind this is just that we're maybe giving encouragement to Ben that we maybe wouldn't say when he's here. Or, you know, if you haven't had the opportunity to talk with him about what you love about the class, um, I think it would be great for him to hear from us. Uh, and so if you, if you guys in this room especially can think of something off the top of your head and you'd be willing to share it, I'd love to hear that from you. Uh, I know that, so 
this is like a very tiny tangible thing that speaks to a larger thing sure. regarding question one what's something i've learned from this class uh this is my second class with ben um so the thing i learned though is how important all of the other resources can be but they're yeah. also daunting and like yeah. letter bible is something he uses really really well yes the other day yes he and i were having a conversation he and i just said would you please show me yeah because <laughs> i I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed at how deep that rabbit hole is. Oh man, goes. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that would be a way of, of encouragement as well. I just appreciate how what I'm learning from Ben yeah. as he's teaching the Bible, like it's this idea of slow down to go fast. So like every word literally yeah. matters. Yeah. And like that's, that is overwhelming to me, but to watch someone who's done the work inviting me and us into this process. Yeah. Of, yeah. That's really good. Yeah, yeah. I, know, I know this much. And then next time I'll maybe know that much. And I'll, have, I'll, I'll go back and learn that I know more now just because of this, this regurgitation yeah. of this information. Yeah, So absolutely. I really appreciate how intentional he is. Yes, for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, Blue Letter Bible is new for me too. Like I didn't know about that until I started taking this class with you guys. And it's, it's amazing. All the different things in that uh, translations and Greek and Hebrew and commentaries and all just a wealth of, of resources there. Yeah. So anybody else? So is the, I, I don't, I'm not aware of blue letter Bible. Are yeah. all, is it all in blueprint? Is that so it, it is a, that's a good question. It is a downloadable Bible resource, just that's like right. the other Bible apps that you might be able except it's just, I don't know the source of it, like who puts it together, but it has different uh, translations of the Bible, just like the other Bible apps do. Um, and perhaps Ben could, give us a little deeper like how did he find it what's the best way to use it i bet he'd be happy to share that with us maybe next week even uh anybody else real quick yeah yeah i will say um i'm not as probably educated in the bible as a lot of you um i grew up catholic number of years years ago i would research some of the bible but book of acts wasn't one i really studied or paid much attention to so when this came up i was like wow someone's gonna teach this and i, I appreciate the like he said, the verse by verse and the words mm -hmm. matter. He's talking mm -hmm. about the Bible, you know, what we're just talking about. But um, I've always had uh, questions about, you know, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was the one that was just like, wow. But I think through the through this book of Acts, it's like, wow. I'm really learning about the beginning of the church, the power of the Holy Spirit. So it means more to me now than it did before. So just having this opportunity to go through verse by verse and not go through it so fast mm -hmm. too. And you really kind of delve into it deeper and, and you have questions, probing questions sometimes, even when you get home and start looking at things like, what was that, you know, but I really appreciate um, just the fellowship too, that he, he's able to bring people together for this. And, and I think uh, it would, I would be encouraged to let other people know about any future classes. Yeah, absolutely. That's that. awesome. Yeah. he Ben has done a really good job of bringing, like the stories of Acts to life. Like it's, for me, it's, I'm viewing it in a fresh way. I've read through the book of Acts. I don't know how many times in my life, but it's, it's different this time. Like when you slow down and you really look at things in the context and, and what things mean. And so it's, it's been really cool. So thank you guys for sharing that stuff. Um, let's go ahead and jump in. So if you remember, we are going through the introductory story of Saul, uh, which Luke is telling before we rejoin the ministry of Peter. So the big picture of the book of Acts, right? The early parts, Peter is one of the main characters along with the other disciples. 
We have the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. A couple of weeks ago, we read through chapter 8. That's mostly about Philip, right? Remember his story? And then this chapter 9 now, so far, it's all been about Saul. And Ben talked about last week, like it's the origin story of Saul. We find out how he became a follower of Christ in an amazing way, being converted. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, went blind, went to Damascus, and then had his sight restored and was immediately baptized and then started preaching. And so there's a lot that happened there. There's a lot that's going to happen this week as we go through more of chapter 9. So he's become now a powerful tool for the church and has switched from being a persecutor to uh, being a servant of the Lord. And so we're going to start reading about that. Acts chapter 9, verse 23 to 25. Let's jump right in. Would somebody read that for me? Acts chapter 9, 23 to 25. For many days had passed, and Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Okay. Thank you. So here's an example, like we were just talking about. If you don't slow down, you go right over something. That the phrase, many days had elapsed. There's a lot that goes into that phrase right there. It actually means when the days were fulfilled. So what Luke is saying that it's when it was the God-appointed time for Saul's preaching to move beyond Damascus. Uh, and so we see God's sovereignty is still the center for all that happens here. Just as the church moved outward from Jerusalem by means of persecution, now similarly we have Saul's ministry is going to be moving outward from Damascus because of persecution. And it's ironic because Saul is the one that was persecuting Christians in the first place, right? So he's the cause of the first movement of the gospel outward from Jerusalem. And now he's on the other side of things. So that's very interesting. Luke also skips over a three-year period in that phrase when he says many days have elapsed. In Galatians, Saul tells us about this considerable period of time. Uh, And I'll read this. This is from Galatians 1, uh, starting in verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So he's describing that many days had elapsed period there, approximately three years. So he leaves Damascus initially and says he did, he did so because he didn't want to consult with flesh and blood, right? So that meaning humans. So the obvious conclusion there is that he's consulting with somebody other than flesh and blood. Well, who would that be then? That would be with the Holy Spirit and with the Lord Jesus, yes. So Saul describes this part of his experience uh, in Arabia, and he does it in kind of an interesting way. He uses a third-person point of view. And that's in 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 2. I'm going to read that for you as well. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And if you guys don't know what he means by third heaven, uh, in those days, heaven was used as a word to talk about different realms. So like the first heaven would be the sky, the atmosphere, birds and clouds, all that stuff. 
Second heaven would be space, outer space, planets, stars. And then the third heaven was the heavenly realm, God's dwelling place. So it's literally where God dwells. So that's what he's saying when he says third heaven. So such a man was caught up to third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. So he had this amazing experience in Arabia where he spent time with God. It's like his, his kingdom basic training was not with men. It was with the Lord. Um, so the distinction in Saul's calling in extraordinary degree of his knowledge was a result of his special appointment by Jesus. And the reason so much scripture came from Saul was the direct result of his unique conversion and commissioning and the time that he spent with God, like we just read about. So when we go back to our story in Damascus, the Jews appealed to the Roman authorities to get Saul arrested. Just as with Jesus, they were making false accusations, and Saul says that they convinced the ethnarch to arrest him. And I had to look this up myself. I didn't know what an ethnarch was. It's like a governor or a ruler of a territory. Um, and so this is from 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 30. It says, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas the king was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall. And so escaped his hands. So there's another version of the story that we read about in Acts, where he's uh, escaping from people that are trying to kill him through uh, a window in the wall, through a little basket. And so there's several things I want you to take note of here. First, Saul mentions that the escape happened under Aretas the king. And that helps us with some timeline things and trying to figure out exactly when this story might have taken place. Um, based on several other historical markers, the escape would have taken place between 37 and 39 AD. And so then knowing that the many days had passed, several years, right, after Paul's conversion, we can estimate that Saul's conversion happened between 34 and 36 AD. I thought that was very interesting. Um, next, we see here that Saul saw this event as a shameful way to have to escape the city. He was embarrassed by it, ashamed by it, uh, referring to his own weakness in verse 30 of what I just read, boasting about his weakness. Um, it's interesting to consider uh, that Paul has now switched from being the chief persecutor of the followers of Jesus to now being one who is being persecuted because of following Jesus. It's, he has completely switched 180 degrees, his role. Um, also notice that we see he has people that are helping him escape, right? So he has followers and disciples in Damascus now. So his preaching has resulted in converts who are following his teaching. And as he's going through this, he's also experiencing God's deliverance from danger, just like other followers of Christ have. And at the same time, he's learning that sometimes it comes in very humble ways, like being lowered from a little basket through, the, through a window down the side. You know, like imagine Paul in a little basket being lowered down at, in the dead of night, and then he's got to run off. You know, it's not glamorous, right? He's, he used to have power and prestige and position and title as a Jewish leader. And he's got none of that now. Very humbling for him, I would imagine. Um, so now he's escaped from Damascus and we're headed to Jerusalem. Can somebody read uh, Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 31 for me, please? 9, 26 to 31. 
when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That's something. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, so naturally when Saul arrives in Jerusalem, he would have wanted to associate with other believers, right? Find other followers of Christ, strengthen numbers. He had just escaped danger from Damascus, so he was probably wanting to find a place to feel safe. Um, had he not been converted, he would have gone straight to the Sanhedrin, right? He would have reported to the leaders that were above him in the, in the Jewish hierarchy. Uh, but of course, now he's a follower of Jesus. He's a Christian, so he's not going to go to them because they would arrest him or kill him potentially. Um and so equal, equally naturally, though, the Christ followers in Jerusalem that he's seeking out wanted nothing to do with him. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. This guy, his reputation and his name is known for arresting and torturing and killer, killing Christians. I, if you were them and this guy came back into your area and wanted to hang out with you, would, mm -hmm. would you sign up to go have dinner with him? I don't, I don't know if I would. So that's interesting to think about. The last time they saw Saul was just that three years earlier, and no doubt they had heard rumors. There had been gossip, all kinds of stories, uh, lots of unknowns about the details of Saul's, like, where is Saul? What happened to him? He's just gone now from, from the area. All these things were happening. He was persecuting lots of Christians, and now, poof, it's not happening anymore, at least with him. So naturally, they probably thought it was too good to be true, probably thought it was a trick or a trap to try to lure them into something. So, of course, they reject him. Um, and in fact, we read Saul's own account again in Galatians 1, which I'll read in just a second here. And we see that Saul failed ever to associate with the Jerusalem church, at least in the, at this point in his ministry. Uh, this is Galatians 1, starting in verse 18. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas. That's Peter. That's another name for Peter. And stayed with him for 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Something interesting, at least for me is that first verse there in Galatians 18, where it says they went up to Jerusalem. That's an example for me of something that I learned from this class that I had no idea before. Ben talked about this multiple weeks ago, where if they refer to Jerusalem and traveling to or from it, they never say they went down to Jerusalem. Even if they're traveling geographically south or, you know, what the elevation down, they, I always say up to Jerusalem. That was really a way for them to show respect to their city. So... Um, that was a little rabbit trail. It wasn't in my notes, but I remembered that as we were reading that. That was very interesting to me. So 
based on Barnabas' testimony now, Saul is able to gain an audience with Peter. So it takes somebody stepping in and kind of being a referee. As, as we were reading this and as, as I was preparing for today, I was thinking about Barnabas is kind of in the middle. You got Saul over here. You got the believers over here. And they Saul's trying to convince them, I'm different. I've changed. And the believers want nothing to do with him. And then in the NASB version, it talks about Barnabas taking hold of him. It says the words took hold. I'm imagining that Barnabas had to like physically intervene somehow and, you know, take him by the shirt and take him before Peter or push him through a doorway and motivate him and say like, let's go talk to Peter. Uh, but because Barnabas was known to the believers, right? Already. So he had an end there. Um, so the 15 days, it probably required that long for Peter to become convinced that Saul had truly changed. I mean, Again, put yourself in Peter's shoes. Um, a lot of things have changed over the last few years for Peter. Um, lots of trouble, lots of persecution. Um, this is the same Peter, too, that has fire inside of him. He's the same Peter that took a swipe at the, the high priest's servant's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, when Jesus was being arrested. That same Peter uh, is now sitting across the table in his house from Saul, trying to decide if he's going to trust this guy or not. I mean, the last time that we know that Peter would have seen Saul potentially was when he was standing over the dead body of Stephen after Stephen had just been killed. So those are the images I would imagine that are going through Peter's head as he's trying to listen to Saul. And But Saul is different now. He's changed. And I think Peter eventually realizes that. Um, Maybe more than any other person, Saul understood the meaning of the words that he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Though Saul's conversion truly created a new human being. He was a completely changed person. In addition to Peter, Saul met with James, who was the leader of the Jerusalem church at the time. But notice that Saul says he saw no other disciples. In fact, in verse 22 of the Galatians passage that we just read, Saul says that no disciples even knew him by sight. So they probably heard that he was in the area or heard of his reputation or rumors about what was going on with him. But they did, if, they, if he walked past them in the street, they wouldn't have known who he was. So that tells you where his relationship was with them. Um, they only heard that he, uh, the one previously persecuting them, was running about the city, preaching Christ. So, And then back to the Acts story, Luke gives us the same description in verse 27 that we read earlier, where Barnabas introduced Saul to the apostles, which would be Peter and James. So Peter and James are the only ones that had anything to do with Saul at this time. So then Luke says that Saul freely moved about the city, preaching to the Jews. That was, the church, that was what the church heard about, yet they never directly associated with Saul. Saul's point in Galatians 1, emphasizing that the church didn't associate with him while he preached in Jerusalem, was to highlight that his message came from God and not from men, and that his ministry was uniquely appointed to be independent from the ministry other men were pursuing. So he's, he's clearly special and separated and set apart from the other ministry of the other believers that was going on right now. Something was special about him. But eventually Saul's preaching upset the Jews in Jerusalem as well and they ran him out of town, right? So are you seeing a pattern here? We keep seeing this throughout the book of Acts. The gospel preached to the Jews. They reject it. There's persecution that happens, and the message moves on. So it's moved on to the Samaritans now, uh, as God promised that it would. 
And now with this persecution in Jerusalem, the message is going to move on to Tarsus, right? We just read that. That's an inner area of modern-day Turkey. And so Saul mentions this trip in that Galatians 1 passage as well. He called it Syria and Cilicia. And when Saul goes there now, he stays there for 10 years. So Saul's conversion created a peaceful period for the church in Judea and Galilee and Samaria, which is understandable because, again, they're the chief persecutor of the followers of Jesus in that area had become a follower himself. And so now there was probably a vacuum of who's doing that persecuting now. So um, having told the story of Saul's conversion, Luke is ready to return to Peter's ministry. So we're shifting gears now from Saul, who's just gone off to Tarsus, and we're, we're shifting our focus back to Peter. Remember, it's been decades since Christ's death and resurrection, and still the gospel has yet to reach the Gentiles in a serious way, right? It's still largely confined to the Jews and to the Samaritans. So if you think about, like, let's just say we have a gospel meter. So over here is the Jews where it all started. In the center, we have the Samaritans, and over here is the Gentiles. So we're in the, we're in the middle. We're, we're trying to get over to the Gentiles, but we're just not, we're not there yet. That's still to come in the story. Uh, so while Saul has been called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he's still preaching exclusively to the Jews. His focus is just not on the Gentiles yet. And the same with Peter. Peter is also ministering and preaching to Jews. Um, but Peter is the one that has the keys to the kingdom, right? So he's going to have to come into the story at some point here for the Gentiles to be able um, to join in the story. So before the gospel will be received by the Gentiles, Peter himself is going to become involved. Uh, he must be the one to turn the key to open the gospel for the Gentiles. So before Luke can tell his next installment in the spread of the gospel, he must show how the barrier to the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles is breached. And Peter, as the holder of those keys, breaks through that barrier. Can I have somebody read Acts 9, 32 to 35, please? 32 to 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person. Oh, sorry, this is chapter yeah. four. Yeah, you're okay. No problem. I was looking at my notes. I was like, what? Maybe I have the wrong one. No, yeah. Chapter 9, 32 to 35. You're good. Don't worry about it. Start again. Yeah. All good. Uh, now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Are we good? Yep. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Okay, yep, thanks, Nate. So, Peter traveling through Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, right? James is holding down the fort in Jerusalem, leading, leading the church there, and Peter is the traveling apostle. So, he's going around to different areas in the land of Israel, uh, preaching and teaching. And again, though, notice that his focus, Peter's focus, is on the Jews or near Jews with Samaritans, right? Similar. So at one point, he reaches Lydda and Joppa, which are Jewish seaports where Peter finds other believers already living. And those, those believers were probably dispersed Jews from Jerusalem or converted 
uh, by Philip's ministry. But Peter does what must have become routine for him as the chief apostle. It's interesting that just the word routine, like for us, it's like brushing our teeth or getting ready for the day or just our normal stuff that we do during a life. But he heals a man. Like having Peter had the power, the apostolic power to heal somebody. So he heals a person. This time it's a believer who was paralyzed. I thought it was interesting in verse 33 there, it says uh, in the NASB, a man named Aeneas. So he's an adult who had been bedridden for eight years. So in that, you can see that something must have happened to him, right? This, isn't, this hasn't been a lifelong uh, thing that he's been bedridden or not able to walk. It's been an event that happened to him eight years ago. And now he has the opportunity for the, for the glory of the Lord to be healed of this. So Peter prays, feels the Spirit's leading, and calls upon the man to stand up. The man is healed, and it brings many to believe. Again, this is another pattern that we see, like back in Acts chapter 3, when Peter healed the lame beggar, right? The silver or gold I don't have, but what I have I give you. Remember, you guys remember when Peter said that? And there's another healing there, another crowd gathered around that moment, and he had an opportunity to preach, and many people came to faith in the Lord there. So if you notice, Luke says that all who lived at Lydda and Sharon turned to the Lord there. So at first glance, you're thinking, oh, this is amazing. Like the entire city, everybody in the city came to faith in Jesus. Let's check that box. This area is done. We can move on to the next one. Um, but what that phrase actually means is all who dwell in the city natively. So in other words, it's just the Jews of the city. So the majority of that city was Gentiles. So Luke is saying that the minority Jewish population are who came to faith through this miracle. And then this miracle is followed by a summons from Joppa. Can I get somebody to read Acts chapter 9, 36 to 43, please? Okay. Uh, 43? Yes, 36 to 43. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated means Dorcas. This woman was excelling in acts of kindness and charity, which she, which she did habitually. But it happened at that time that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upstairs room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter got ready and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the room upstairs, and all the windows stood beside all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all of the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed and turned and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows. He presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa many days with a tanner named Simon. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, so a well-liked believer named Tabitha, or in Greek, Dorcas, dies in Joppa, right? It, it describes her as somebody who is abounding with deeds of kindness and charity. So imagine somebody in your own life, maybe, that, that you would describe as abounding with deeds of kindness and charity. I think of my mother, I think of like a, a public figure would be like maybe a Mother Teresa, somebody that everybody respects and loves, that's somebody that do, is doing good deeds, and the whole community is just mourning the loss of this person, an important person in the community. 
Joppa is about 10 miles away from Lydda. So the disciples call for Peter to come quickly. And it's interesting that you use the word quickly. Why, why should Peter come quickly if the woman's already dead? Yeah. So it's an interesting choice of words there. The fact that the believers called Peter tells us that they had a belief that he could do something about this, right? The fact that believers thought Peter could help them in this situation tells us the apostles had earned a reputation for raising people from the dead. Otherwise, if they didn't believe it was possible, why, why call him at all? Why, why summon him? And the fact that they had to call an apostle specifically to get this miracle is also proof that such miracles were not gifts common to all believers. Otherwise, why call for Peter specifically? So this woman has been prepared for burial in the traditional Jewish way. And Peter arrives, sees many widows standing around her, mourning her, and, and showing Peter the clothing that Dorcas had made for them. I'm sure they were sharing how good she was. It's like a, a display designed to, to show them, look how wonderful this woman was. She, surely she's worthy of being resurrected. Again, because they believed that Peter could do something about this. So Peter then orders everybody out of the room. And he calls her to arise after he prays. Peter's miracle causes many to believe in the city of Joppa. And the result of this success is that Peter stays for a considerable amount of time in the city. Peter has ministered to Jews throughout the land. But because he hasn't brought the keys of the gospel to the Gentiles specifically, they remain largely unreached. Even in a city like Lydda, where there was a tremendous response to the gospel, the response was limited to the Jews. And again in Joppa, when Peter chooses to minister, he's directing it at the Jewish believers. So it, there are opportunities for Peter and, and for Saul to minister to the Gentiles, but they've chosen not to thus far. Uh, we're still in that middle on the Samaritans, on our gospel meter, we're still in the middle, haven't gotten over there yet to the Gentiles. And, but we are starting to see cracks in, in Peter's wall here, in his wall of strict Jewish observance and the, and the traditions and the rules that they all follow back then. Because if you'll notice, it said he's living in the home of a tanner. Does anybody know what a tanner is? Animal hides, yeah. right? So you take raw animal hides, which would be, it would be dirty, it would be smelly, bloody, uh, it's definitely considered unclean right. in the Jewish tradition. So as a Jewish man living in this, the house with this, uh, this is, this is not cool for the, like, so, and in this, in this time, this time period, it would have been pig and goat skins primarily that they would have been dealing with, which was also considered extremely unclean in the Jewish tradition. Uh, but we find Peter living here. So clearly things are starting to change. We're moving towards, having the Gentiles be a part of our story now. Peter seems to be dropping those strict Jewish observances, and it becomes a little bit of foreshadowing almost for what we see in chapter 10. So we're going to jump into just the first part here of chapter 10 and read about a guy named Cornelius. Uh, can I have somebody read Acts 10, verses 1 through 6? At Caesarea, there was a, a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. 
One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, who, whose house is by the sea. Okay, thank you. So once again, we have another time that Peter is being summoned. But this time, the big difference is it's a Gentile. And not only is it a Gentile, it's a Gentile Roman centurion in Caesarea. The centurion was a non-commissioned officer in the Roman army who commanded 100 troops. So just like our word century, 100 years, centurion, 100 troops. This would be something close to an army captain in our modern day military forces. Uh, and he was part of a unit that was uh, a 600 man force called the Italian cohort. It's interesting in scripture, every reference that we find to a centurion is a positive reference. There's, there's never anything negative spoken about a centurion. Uh, and this, this one is no exception. The centurion was a God-fearing man, uh, as it turns out in the story. He did two things. He gave sacrificial gifts to the Jews, and he prayed to the Jewish God. Both of those things probably put him in, in some significant danger with Rome if his superiors would ever have found these things out. Um, so the question is, was Cornelius a believer at this point? Based on the testimony of Scripture, we would say no. Cornelius was a God-fearing and sympathetic, God-fearing man and sympathetic to the Jewish people. He had forsaken the Roman pagan gods, including Caesar himself, yet he didn't know yet of a Messiah, nor was he seeking him. But Cornelius represented the ultimate Gentile roadblock for Peter and any, any Jewish evangelist. Not only was Cornelius a Gentile, he was a Roman. So it's not just any Gentile on the street that we're talking about here that's going to be potentially the first follower of Jesus, the first person that would have the Holy Spirit's influence in the life. It's a significant and important person in the Gentile world. And the Romans were hated, right, because they had conquered Judea. None of the Jews loved any of the Romans. Um, not popular. Not only was he a Roman, he's a Roman soldier, a commander of those occupying troops. Um, it seems that Cornelius was put there for a purpose. He was calculated by God to present the greatest possible obstacle for Peter to overcome in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. But he was also a man that had been prepared by the Spirit to receive the gospel readily when the time was right. His heart was not hard towards the Jewish God. He was a monotheistic man who prayed to God. And uh, so his heart was ready before this story, before we even get to this story. And so the scene has been set for the Gentiles to enter the church. And it begins with a messenger, an angel, who says Cornelius' prayers were a memorial or a reminder before God. So Cornelius has this encounter with this angel, and it's, it, the scripture says it's a vision. So it's not a dream, and it's not a, a real physical person, angel, that's in the room with him. It's a, it's a vision in his mind's eye where he has this encounter with this angel. Just imagine having that happen and somebody yells your name. That's going to catch your attention. You're going you're to be paying attention to what this person is going to say to you. So, uh, so this, this stage, the scene has really been set 
for the Gentiles to enter into the church. And it begins with this encounter. Uh, and God is now ready to act. So notice here again how the entire process is coming as a result of God's work to move people into position. God is a master of putting the right people in the right place at the right time. He's crafting the story of how his gospel is going to go out from the Jews to the Samaritans to the Gentiles, and we're getting to experience that. So the angel moves the centurion to dispatch men for Peter. Peter doesn't intend to reach out to the Gentiles, right? We've already seen that. His focus is on the Jews. So God is going to take someone from the Gentile world and put him in front of Peter and, and give him the hint. Hopefully Peter gets the hint here. Uh, and so the details provided are so specific that they leave Cornelius without any doubt as concerning its origin. He knows it's from God. He's going to do this. He's going to find Peter and reach out to him. So notice that the angel gives Cornelius no indication of why he needs to call for this man, Simon. But Cornelius knows to obey. And then it, we didn't read these, but in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 10, Luke tells us that the centurion calls for two of his servants and a devout soldier, probably those few people that he truly trusted and explained everything to them. And then he sends them off to Joppa to summon Peter. And that is actually where we're going to leave off for this week. We're ending a little bit earlier than Ben normally does, I know, but I'm going to go ahead and pray and close us out. Um, so God, just thank you for your word. Again, thank you for the chance that we have to experience this story that you are writing with your creation, with us, with humanity. God, we're grateful to have your word available to us. We pray that you would continually be teaching us, helping us to grow and learn and become more like you. God, help us to be sensitive to your Holy Spirit's leading in our life as we go this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer. I hope you found the content enriching and useful in your daily walk with Christ. Remember, the journey of faith does not end here. Keep diving into the Word, seeking wisdom from the Holy Spirit, and allowing its truth to shape your life. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Your feedback helps us improve and reach more listeners just like you. Until next time, may the peace of God be with you, guiding you through your week until we meet together again.